So uh, many of you guys know my story, but I, um, I started uh, preaching at a very young age, was called uh, to communicate, really starting at the age of 13. Had the chance to preach a lot in my church growing up, uh, probably a mistake on their part, but it gave me a lot of experience. And uh, the key as a young uh, communicator, especially to folks who are much older than you, was choosing wheelhouse passages. I didn't know much about the Bible, but I was super passionate in my reading. Like I could take a passage, read it, I didn't even have to exposit it, and it seemed that, you know, the, it, it, like, it provided for folks that semblance that, okay, this guy at least believes in what he's reading, which uh, they weren't used to. But one of the wheelhouse passages that I always turn to uh, is a passage that I want to actually open with tonight. And so it excites me because it brings me back. Like, I remember being 16 years old, standing in the pulpit, and like it was a legit pulpit, okay? Like, we're not talking, you know, silver, metal uh, stand. We're talking like wooden, you know, with the spaceship over top, you know, and the li- like a legit, if you grew up in traditional church, a legit pulpit, okay? And it was like way above everybody. That's, that's why I love preaching from the floor because I grew up like preaching like 15 feet above everyone, you know? It was just kind of weird. So uh, cue the parable here, the picture if we can. Um, so uh, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, thankfully, this isn't how the Good Samaritan actually goes. Uh, this guy says, don't get too excited, fella. I'm the mediocre Samaritan. I only give you a Band-Aid and then I'm off. Uh, so if you, if you know the story, you know that it doesn't go like that, but it does go like this. Here's what Jesus uh, communicates. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest, a good old priest, was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Uh, this was the moment when I was 16 where I, where I would say things like, are you kidding me? Like a priest? Like a, you know, a man of the cloth would walk by a hurting individual? You know, something along those lines. Probably had a joke or two. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, a Levite of all people, when he came to the place and he saw him, passed by on the other side. Dramatic pause, dramatic pause. Next passage. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, this was the one point I was really excited because I couldn't exposit much scripture, but I could describe that Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. That's why I love this story, because I felt like I was knowledgeable, you know? All right, so listen, Jews and Samaritans, like, they're not friends, okay, everybody? So the fact that, that this is happening and that this individual, the Samaritan, is helping, like, this is crazy. I was always excited about that, okay? Let's keep going. Mark, what are you doing? Verse 34, he went to him, um, does the Samaritan, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, whatever uh, more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So I was rereading this story this past week, being reminded of preaching it as a young kid. And my focus was always, 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 and I mean I've preached this at youth rallies and over and over and over, my focus was always the fact that a Samaritan would help a Jew in spite of all the criticism and all the barriers relationally that exist, that a priest and a Levite even walked by, but not the Samaritan. But something else dawned on me this time. Um, This uh, individual doesn't just deliver this man from being beaten. 
after the, after the deliverance, there is uh, a care, a, an intentionality, a, a love that way farther than goes the extra mile is portrayed to this one that he's helping. He's interested, he cares, he um, reaches down, he spends his own money, he takes his own time, uh, he looks in the eyes, he bandages the wounds. I mean, there, there's a very, very intimate connection. Um, in other words, it's not just deliverance and then it's game over. And I, I fear for uh, most uh, believers that there is a tremendous focus on deliverance, not negating deliverance from sin, not saying that we shouldn't celebrate it. It's certainly a blessing. But the question of, okay, so what now? Like what happens after deliverance? What, what's the rhythm? What would God do after that? I, I don't feel like we celebrate enough. We put a ton of emphasis, streamers and confetti, on salvation Again, not that we should ever diminish it. It's a great work of deliverance. Um, but I'm under the belief, because of what I read in the scripture and what I've experienced in my own life, like there is so much more that God does after that. Uh, that salvation, we could say, uh, is the beginning, right? That the revelation of his character, of his intentionality, of his love, of his care, of what he does with us, so resembles what Jesus describes in the Great Samaritan. And we've seen it with the Israelites in our journey of Exodus. Okay, first, where, where did it start out? Deliverance. He delivered them out of the slavery-ridden hands of the Egyptians, brought them out out of 400-plus years of slavery. He delivered them. Confetti, streamers, you know, blast the trumpets. It was a great move. But then what we've been watching in several chapters of what many of you feel like would be like scriptural minutiae, God has been in his grace directing them in other words he doesn't deliver them look at them and say all right so I've done my job now you know you guys go figure it out on, on your own no because they are his covenant people because they have relationship God doesn't just deliver them he then provides direction he helps them he guides them he spends time with them he shows them components of himself he doesn't leave them to dry or even turn his back on them he is directing them and then tonight we get to see what the bookends are of this direction because I know for many of you the last several weeks you've been like I can't take another rule about you know goat milk and burning like I just can't I can't handle it okay well what the bookends are of direction is God's deliverance and then on the other side God's devotion God's devotion to his people God's deep, intentional love of his people, these three things uh, emask, as it were, this beautiful journey that God is on with us. So I just want to begin with the thesis that when God saves you, he's just getting going. He's just getting started. And as much emphasis as we place on God saving and delivering and praise God because he does it, I'm just telling you tonight, I want to take a journey on what else. So that said, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23. We're going to end uh, Exodus 23 tonight with a section that is absolutely beautiful. Um, we are now out of, uh, for at least a time, uh, some of the rules and regulations, and we get to journey through a, a different kind of passage. Again, God leaves here for a second, some direction, though there's certainly some encompassed here, and he moves on to a, even a different component of his character. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. When you're all there, say, I'm there. Thank you so much. Verse 20, here we go. Behold, 
I send an angel, you know, here you go, right? Anytime I, I, I read angels in the scripture, I instantly think of like all the people that put an angel on their dashboard, right? That, that somehow have, you know, like thought that an angel, like that, that's really what an angel does. You know, they're sitting there hanging down, you know, next to the Mardi Gras beads, you know, flowing back and forth between the rear view or something. Um, this is a little bit different kind of angel. Behold, I send, is God saying, an angel before you to look, to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, uh, I uh, played many sports in high school. I was a four-sport athlete, and I sat in some unbelievable locker room speeches, okay? For those of you guys that are athletes and you had at least a halfway decent coach or at least a halfway decent motivator, there is something incredibly special about the locker room speech. Knowing that, I then was a coach. So already being a communicator, I was so excited about like the, the pregame speech because I know how powerful they are, right? Uh, some of you guys maybe have heard me talk about this, but uh, John Locke and I coached uh, freshman football at Howell. And uh, before one game, I was like, hey, hey, dude, uh, I, I, really, I got a word for him, man. You know? And he's like, you're going to preach? I was like, maybe. I don't know. You know? But I, <laughs> I got a word. Well, the team at that point was uh, one and forever. We weren't that good. Uh, we had scored all of like two or three touchdowns. We onside kicked every, every time we kicked just to try to get the ball back. And... Um, <laughs> We were going up against a very hefty opponent. And so, like, man, just picture, like, in all passion and rage, I just went on this tirade. And my statement was, why not now? Why not us? And so I was, like, looking at these freshmen, you know, in the eyes. And I was just saying, boys, it's time. Why not now? Why not us? You know, and I'm going crazy. And in my heart, I know why not now? Why not us? Because we're horrible, you know? <laughs> but... But I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get them to understand that, like, they can play to a higher level, you know. And, and we go out on the field, and we have a phenomenal first three plays. And then it was entirely downhill. But, <laughs> but um, I, I, I was thinking through, like, all of these great speeches that I've heard. And every time a coach um, starts a speech, it's all wishful thinking. Um, now, there are some great speeches, like, for some of you guys who have seen Hoosiers, Right, like Gene, Gene Hackman gives an amazing speech and they go out and win. Like sometimes it happens, but you never know. The way I see this moment in scripture is God starts calling his shots and every single one of these things are, are going to happen. In other words, what God is saying here is I will accomplish what I set out to do. And by the way, that's the mantra of God in general all the time. I will accomplish my plan. I will. Uh, there's never wishful thinking. There, there's never, I, I hope. Uh, God is never like sitting around twiddling his thumbs, wondering what's going to happen. The consistent mantra all throughout the scripture is that God will accomplish his plan. He has a plan and he will accomplish it. And so what does he begin this whole speech as it were with these folks? I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way and what? To bring you to the place I have prepared. I'm going to bring you. You don't have to doubt it. I'm going to bring you. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to guard you. I'm going to protect you. As we said last week over and over and over, do you trust me? And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you do or whether you don't. I'm still going to accomplish my plan. And I want to make sure all of us understand that. The question from him to us consistently is, do you trust me? Your answer does not matter and does not change whether or not God will accomplish his plan. What does matter is your belief in him and how then that affects your relationship with God. 
But whether you believe or whether you doesn't does not change who God is. And so as he begins to describe the speech to the nation, knowing already what's going to happen, is only the children in this entire nation are going to get there because of the disobedience of the Israelites. But God still says, I'm going to accomplish. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to guard you. There's going to be an angel that goes before you. I, when I say things, make them happen. He says in verse 21 then, pay careful attention to him, the angel, and obey his voice. Look at this. Do not, what's the word? Rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. Interesting. For my name is in him. Rebellion. Don't rebel against the voice of the angel. He's trying to direct you. Stay devoted in that relationship. Do not rebel. Uh, last week we taught on having faith like a child. And I think sometimes we think in our minds that, that then we're to act like a child. There's a difference between having faith like a child and acting like a child. Somebody? And, and, and here's the difference. Here's the difference. Uh, children without Jesus naturally rebel. Okay, last night, uh, it's family fun time at my house, which normally encompasses uh, snacks and popsicles, okay, and random dance parties. That's just kind of how we roll. Um, and so we had kind of gotten into that mode, and, and I was really excited. We we're going to have a fun night, and Dawson asked me uh, for another popsicle, and I turned to him, and I said, no, son, we're done with popsicles. Uh, Dr. Short said that we cannot have six popsicles, otherwise your teeth will rot, okay? And, um, and so what happens is, you know, I kind of turn around, I'm attending to the other two, and I turn around, and my son has put a chair up next to the refrigerator, has immediately, after I told him not to get a popsicle, has reached up, got his favorite berry blue out of that, has even gone over now to the cabinet, grabbed scissors, okay, is cutting the top off my five-year-old with scissors. He should never, ever hold scissors, okay, not allowing him to hold scissors till he's like 10. And I turn around, and that little punk, he's smirking at me. Like, I turn around, he's holding his popsicle, and he's just like, what's up, man, you know? <laughs> it made for a few interesting moments in my house. Um, but it, it was the reminder, it was the reminder that children instantaneously rebel. I mean, immediately after being told, don't eat the popsicle, my son turns around and not only, like, grabs a popsicle that was sitting on the counter, but he goes to great efforts to rebel, now, this has really, really stirred my heart. So can you guys, can, can we roll together for a bit? Okay, next slide. Check this out. Here's my question. Every single time we come to a point, just like what God is intending for his nation, do not rebel against this angel. It's a question of rebellion versus submission. For Dawson, it was the same thing. Are you going to rebel against your dad? Are you going to um, go against what your dad desires. Are going to go against what your dad wanted, his word? He told you specifically, gave you specific instructions. Are you going to rebel against that, go the other way? Or are you going to submit, bend the knee, humble yourself, and obey? Now, um, classically, what we do is we disconnect rebellion from who we're rebelling against. You learn this as a kid. My son, in that moment, doesn't think he's rebelling against me. He thinks he's just being defiant in general. He thinks, you know what, in his you know, deranged five-year-old mind, that he deserves that popsicle, that he's earned that popsicle, that it doesn't matter what dad says, right? He completely disconnects it from our relationship, father and son, 
and he rebels. And that, my friends, is where he's in error. Because he's disconnected the rebellion from who he's rebelling against. And some of your greatest acts of rebellion, it's for that exact same reason. You have forgotten that when you sin, you sin against God. That there's this relationship that has been bound together in Christ. And so when you rebel, you think in your mind that it's just sin. Have you ever thought that in your mind? I, you know, I know you never say that because you don't want to uh, seem doctrinally incorrect. Uh, but in your mind, in your heart, you're like, oh, this is just sin and I'll just be forgiven. And the weight of the impact of the relationship doesn't sit on your shoulders. You're forgetting that you're sinning against God. That it's rebellion against God. Similarly, when we submit, we often are submitting thinking that somehow God's going to either applaud us, that other Christians are going to give us some fanfare, or that our parents are going to be happy with us. We submit out of all kinds of other reasons instead of simply submitting because God is who God is. In other words, when you get to the place in your heart when I will not rebel against God because it's God, and I will submit to God because it's God, that is the beautiful union. But often where we find ourselves is I will rebel because I want to do what I want to do, completely disconnecting the relationship. And when I submit, I just want to submit because, you know what, I want to be a rule keeper and a moral person just like all the other Christians around me. And that, my friends, is not the gospel at all. You've been joined in relationship to a great God, and because of that, you have the opportunity to not rebel because of him and to bend the knee because of him. It, it's so amazing, for those of you guys that are parents, you know, like, you can always tell how close you are with your kids. Um, Maddox is definitely this way. Dawson, not so much, but, but Maddox, when I discipline him, it's like before I've even spanked him, okay? And we believe in spanking up in my house, okay? You know, you guys have your own beliefs, but Scripture says don't spare the rod. So that's a whole other teaching, but we ain't sparing no rod up in my house, all right? Anyway, all right? Before I even spank Maddox, okay, and I've talked him through disobedience, he's already asking for a hug. Like, I'm like going in for the spank, and he's like, hug me, Daddy, you know? And it's sweet as can be, unless you would have been there 30 seconds before, you know, the reason why he's getting a spank. But you guys understand, like, he's connected all of this to relationship. And so his repentance, even in that moment, is not because he even recognizes that he's done error, but he recognizes who he's erred against. Are you guys with me? It completely changes your heart. Humility comes so much quicker. And that's why God is like, listen, Pay careful attention. Do not rebel. What I have for you is so beautiful. I have something, and I'm, I'm taking you somewhere. I'm trying to encourage you in this. Look at what verse 22 says. He goes on adding this, but, and this is a strange word because it seems like maybe it's, it's kind of an if clause. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, look at this, then... I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, we get a little bit of an indication here of who the angel is. Okay, L look at the verse. What does the verse say? But if you carefully obey his voice and do all I say, then I will be an enemy, right? Like, 
So there's this really close unison between this angel and Yahweh. And, and some would even say, like, this is the angel of Yahweh speaking on behalf of Yahweh. Uh, the point here is that, that God would say that if we obey his voice, that all of a sudden he's going to point to all these other people and say, now I'm their enemy. Well, if you remember, Father Abraham in Genesis 20, or in Genesis 12, heard this exact same thing. Check this out in uh, Genesis chapter 12. He says to Abraham in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, what's that? I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He promises to Abraham, and he's fulfilling it now in his covenant people. Okay? Your enemy will be my enemy. Your adversary, my adversary. What God is saying is, I am with you people. I'm devoted to you. I will not abandon you, ever. Listen, I've heard a lot of people describe God in a lot of different ways, and even more specifically, talk about their relationship in a lot of different ways. Christians are pros at it. We've come up with all this liturgy to describe certain seasons of our faith, haven't we? Like, you know, sometimes, man, I'm just going through the storm right now, right? And, and that's fair. And some of us are like, well, man, I'm just going, I'm going through a rough season, you know? The, the harvest hasn't come yet, right? Like, all these phrases that we use, right? But let me say, oh, let me make sure you understand one thing. For those of you in here who feel like God's abandoned you and you're a follower of Christ, he has not. He never will. God does not abandon his people. He is with them. And he is with you. And maybe, just maybe, we should put some of our feelings aside for a second and start believing in some promises of the scripture. Darn the feelings that we have that distract us from the truth of the word at times. That somehow put our emotions into the word and start scrambling the scripture to make sense to us in our emotion. It's like a husband trying to console a wife and she's inconsolable. Have you been there, husbands? Right? You're trying to say something, and when you say something, it makes her cry more. And then when you don't say something, she's mad because you didn't say something. And then you start rubbing her back, and then she like backslaps you, right? It's like, I do not know how to help you. Any of you dudes ever been there like that, right? Okay, just me and that brother, all right? Okay? I'm just like, I'm trying to help you, a hug. I don't know. I'm just gonna sit here, right? Just tell me what I need to do. I mean, it's crazy. I'm not a mind reader, right? But the beautiful thing about God is we can, uh, we can rest and trust in his promises. In fact, in this text alone, there's 14 of them. We don't have to go off our emotion or our feelings. When you feel that God's abandoned you, I'm just telling you, you can rest in the scripture that says he hasn't. God, in verse 22, is shaping his people around. Listen, I'm going to be with you. Your enemies are going to be my enemies. Your adversaries, my adversaries. And he gets specific with this. I love this in verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, all weird words, um, and I blot them out. So, so God's saying, like, all these people, like, she gone. Like, they're going to be done. Over with, okay? Look at this. Here, here's what he says, though. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, 
but you shall utterly overthrow them, and I love this, and break their pillars in pieces. Okay, we got some work to do up in this verse, all right? Now, I lived up in northern Illinois, and uh, a state, some of you probably have heard of Iowa. Have you guys all heard of this? What I've learned is nationwide, it's kind of the forgotten state, uh, and rightfully so. It's mostly uh, a few interstates and corn, okay? But I live there. God bless corn, though, right? Amen? I mean, it's just amazing. Guess not. Um, and, well, up in northern uh, Illinois in Iowa, where I lived, um, a Coca-Cola was called Pop, right? It's called Pop. So we called everything Pop. Hey, you want to Pop? You want to Pop? I just start saying that here, and it sounds incredibly weird, doesn't it? Like, we should start like a Pop revolution. Bring it back, right? <laughs> so, so at first, at first when I lived down here in the southern states, all right, I, I first started saying uh, Pop, like fighting, you know, like going against the grain. Yeah, I, can you guys pass the pop, right? And they, they'd all look at me like, pop? Like, what, what are you talking about? Is that like is that some kind of weird candy or something? You know, like, is that what you guys call drugs up in the north? You know, no, you know? <laughs> pass the pop, you know? No, I, I just, I want a Coke. I never sat down and, like, made the firm decision that I was going to switch. And let's all agree, it's a, it, you know, it's a big decision to make. <laughs> but what I noticed is over time, one day, I was calling it soda, like mindlessly, I had completely changed my entire language. Again, I never like drew it on my whiteboard or wrote it in my journal. And today will be the day. <laughs> Lord, give me strength. I will now call it soda from this day forth. Right? I never, made that, I never made that commitment. One day over time, mindlessly, carelessly, I just started calling it soda. started conforming. Here's what's going to happen for these people. They're going to take a journey, God's going to start blotting out all of these pagan lands who worship pagan gods, and what God is going to warn them against is you're going to come into these areas, and they're going to be worshiping new things, and they're going to be um, talking about different ways to sacrifice, and they're going to be showing you uh, new ways to do things, and I'll even be more specific, agriculture was at the time uh, a huge means of, you know, valuing your family and providing for them. Well, do you know what all these pagan lands believe, right? That the deities were such a huge part of agriculture. So do you understand how huge and difficult it would be for an Israelite to watch God conquer this land, but then to take on the pagan a religion that's there? Because what they're saying is, hey, listen, if you want your agriculture to grow, like you need to do X, Y, Z. You need to start, like, doing the agricultural dance. You know, you need to pray to this God. You need to build this pillar in your field. And then all of the farm gods are going to bless you. What God is saying is, is do not conform. Don't conform to their gods. Don't do as they do. There's a different way. I, I love how Paul puts it in Romans 12. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I've heard it said that often the C in Christian really means conformist. And that's troubling to me. I hope it is to you. That somehow mindlessly and carelessly over time we've just become the culture that we exist in. Because it's new ways. It's fresh. It seems like the grass is greener on the other religion. On the other way of life. On the other deity. 
God says not just to not do those things. He says break their stones, or in this case, their altars, into pieces. So in other words, you have such an angst against idolatry that you watch me blot out these people, and then you look at their shrines, and you literally crush them. You take them out. If it's rock, you watch it crumble. Okay? If it's some kind of pillar or form of, you know, that's holding up some structure, you kill and purge the whole thing. There should be nothing left of the idolatry God's saying. Why? He's showing that he is devoted to them. And because of his devotion, or as John puts, because I first love you, then you can love me. Are we together, church? He's saying, look, it's not just not doing as they do or mindlessly or carelessly just conforming. It's literally seeing it for what it is and purging the land of these pagan idols. Now, I'd like to have a moment, you and I. Is that cool? Can we have a moment? Hold hands, kumbaya, here we go. Candle light. You have a candle? Tomorrow, okay? What right now in your life? people that are around you, the people that you journey with, the relationships that you have, what are ways right now that you see yourself mindlessly and carelessly conforming? Your language gets loose here. Your doctrine gets a little loose over here. The physicality of your relationship, you know, kind of, listen, it's really not that important over here. What if tonight one of the huge things that each of us heard straight from the mouth of God is do not do as they do. Do not worship their gods. And you'll notice in my scripture, like it's yours, it's in lowercase. Do not worship their gods. I'm a better God because I'm a God that actually exists. So I I feel like for some of you, it's just praying tonight that you would be wakened up from the mindless, careless Ways of your life that like a pop to a soda, you've just kind of conformed. You haven't even realized it. Maybe it's time to ask some who are close to you. Hey, do you see me conforming in any ways that I'm just not giving attention to? It would be a great conversation to have. He continues, and look at this next string. This is, this is absolutely crazy. In verse 25, look at this. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. Come on now, right? This is like Texas Roadhouse's like exact verse, right? <laughs> Good rolls. Okay, that's what I mean by that. Uh, he will bless your bread and your water. And look at this. And I will take sickness away from you. This is God straight in these 14 promises of this text sharing his devotion to his people. Look at this. None shall miscarry. This is one of those verses where it would be very, very easy to pass over. Oh, that's nice. That's a good anecdote from God. But I know I'm talking to somebody tonight. You start talking about miscarrying in a room? So many of you have been affected by that. And first, just let me say, if you have, I'm incredibly sorry. I don't know personally what it's like to go through that, but I know it's hurtful, painful, losing a child. So incredibly sorry. And we live in an age of medicine, of doctors, of hospitals. Imagine how many miscarriages there would have been in this age. 
So for God to come in and say, no one will miscarry. Like, have you ever even seen that in the Old Testament before? What is, like, he's like, he, this is huge. I want you to understand this. This is God saying, listen, like life is just going to happen. This is how much I'm devoted to you. No one is going to miscarry or be barren in your land. So not just not miscarry, but listen, like people be having babies everywhere, okay? No one's going to be buried, uh, barren, okay? I will fulfill the number of your days. A little bit of different interpretation of what that could mean, but certainly some form of, you know, hey, you're going to live, uh, you know, the longevity of your life. And then verse 27, and, and this will fire up the dudes in the room. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and I will send hornets before you. Here we go, right? I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. What God is saying is, listen, I'm going to be so interested in protecting you and directing you and being devoted to this relationship. What God is saying is, there will be no bounds to my care of you. What a setup for what he accomplishes in Christ. Please, somebody. I mean, there will be no bounds. Even his son. The rhythm and the pattern through the scripture from God to his people is I will do whatever it takes to deliver direct and be devoted to my people, period. The sacrifice of my only son, listen, that's on the table. Going against enemies, wiping out man, women, and child at times in these lands, and those are going to be tough texts to wrestle with. But what God is saying is, I do not hold back from loving my people, and I don't know what kind of message you want to hear tonight. But could there be anything more encouraging than that? He will not hold back. Now listen, it may not be in the precise way that you think. Well, God, I really think that not holding back would look like A, B, and C. You read it in my journal last night. Come on, I thought we were wearing BFF bracelets, right? (laughs) God does not hold back in loving his people by providing for them the thing that they long for the most, and that is love. And wherever that love takes them, takes you, The beauty is that you've received a love that is nothing like a love from a wife, a husband, a seventh grade girlfriend, even us, this culture that says, I love you so much, none of it compares to the devoted love of God. I will drive them out, verse 29 says, as he continues, from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. I'm just going to keep providing. Look at this. Little by little, verse 30, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. I'm taking you to the land of Canaan. I will accomplish this. And then verse 31, he talks some more structure. I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. And I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing locker room speech. Why? Because it happens. It's not a coach, a coach well-wishing with his team. Hey, everybody, like tonight, you know, maybe, maybe we'll figure it out, right? And for those of you guys that ever played sports, the moment a team lacks because they were playing a cupcake was the moment you got upset. What's God's message? Hey, we're going to win. And I can guarantee you because I'm the one who's behind it. 
So there's no need for anybody to question. I'm going to blot out these people. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to set up these borders. This will happen because I'm God. And then he adds before he closes verse 20, uh, chapter 23, one beautiful, beautiful verse. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. Uh, the word covenant here is berith. Everyone say it. Berith. All right. You can go home and be Hebrew scholars. Berith. Now, berith bears with it tremendous significance and certainly most often in the Old Testament is interpreted covenant. Now, our children throughout the gospel project are going to be learning for three years. It's a three-year plan. They're going to be learning of how through Christ we are God's covenant people. That God's established a covenant with us, that God is not a covenant breaker, but a covenant keeper. So after sharing about all the victory that his people will have because of him, he then says, and make sure they know, you will not and shall not make a covenant with them or their gods. No alliance, no promises, no contractual agreements, no covenants. You will not walk in this land and be subservient to any other people or any other God. You might think that this would be burdensome. But God, man, you're taking out all of our options. All of our choices here, God. I mean, there's so much that this land has to provide. There's so many gods. There's so many great things. God is not burdening them. He is blessing them by saying, you get to be in covenant with the one who can actually keep a covenant. So you take that blessing and you run all the way to me with it. And anytime you start to get confused, you'll be reminded by those pagan religions that the alliance that that God was trying to provide, he could never fulfill. And I always will. So every time you forget will be another reminder that there's nothing there for you. And I just want to bring to the surface what some of you are experiencing in your heart. You've been trying, testing, dabbling. All kinds of things surrounding your life. Trying a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of debauchery here, a little bit of pursue this, trying to make some covenants and some promises with things of the world. And aren't you finding out, again, what you already know, that there's nothing there for you? I just want to bring to the surface maybe the thing that you've been pressing down, trying to ignore it, hoping that you wouldn't have to repent of it. Those covenants will always break because they're not covenants based on one who can keep it. And our covenant isn't based on our own ability to keep it. It's based on his ability to what he's already kept. This beautiful text ends with verse 33, kind of the final picture of this. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you, uh, they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And God in no way in this text is, di is uh, diminishing obedience. These people will disobey and they will be punished for it. There will be consequences to sin and disobedience. And there always are. Even though we have grace in Christ, it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for your sin. So don't hear any of this beautiful, victorious coaches chat as diminishing the people's obedience. He's still calling on their obedience. 
So when we started this, we looked at these uh, three things. God doesn't just deliver you. He hasn't just saved you and then, like, dropped you to the curb. Hey, good luck, little Billy, you know? I did a great work in delivering you from sin. Way to go me, right? So now you just kind of fend for yourself. Figure it out. We'll see at the end, maybe. That's not God. In your life, God has delivered. He certainly has directed. And my, my brothers and sisters, he has been incredibly devoted. But here's how often we see this, okay? Um, we see that for believers, yes, like this is our truth and this is our reality. But even more so, I think this is how we phrase it. Next slide. I think we think there is victory and deliverance, burden in direction, and burden in devotion. In other words, thank you God for saving me. I really don't want you to, di to direct me anywhere. <laughs> or I'm really getting angry at the direction you're taking me. And so your direction, though you say it's loving, you know what? It's quite honestly somewhat burdensome. And so instead of us experiencing something different, God, in his love and his grace, directing us wherever that direction may head, it gets burdensome. And not just that, but the devotion piece. The devotion, the relationship, the intimacy seems to be pressing us down instead of encouraging us and freeing us. I want to tell somebody something tonight. This is the truth of ours in Scripture. Next slide. There is victory and deliverance. There is victory and direction. Wherever that direction is going, there is victory. And why, my friends? Because he is the one directing. Is somebody with me? Anybody? He's the one who's directing. And so if he is directing, if he is at the helm, no matter what it means, there is victory. Because it's connected to life in him. And somebody, please, there is victory in devotion. That you get to have intimate covenant relationship with the one person, the one God in this whole universe that can actually keep a covenant. That can make an alliance, make a promise, and follow through. There's victory in that. So you know what I see in this text? Man, if I'm an Israelite, I'm reading these things, and I'm sorry, like, I'm ready to start dancing. Because what I read is God saying, I'm with you, I'm going to go before you, I'm going to be behind you, anyone who's in your way, she gone, I'm just all the time going to be your God. And I'm not so sure that there's a better truth that they could receive at this moment. And then somehow, ignorantly, negate it. Disconnect God from their rebellion. And think that somehow that all of this victory, that defeat would be better. So, um, can I share something with you? The Gospel of Matthew. Is uh, really beautiful, and uh, there's this portion called the Great Commission, where Jesus says, "Go therefore and make disciples," and et cetera, et cetera. Do you guys know how the Gospel of Matthew ends? Here's how it ends right here. Look at this. There is no need. To make a covenant with anything else. Any other God, any other idea, 
any other people. Our marriages and the covenant that that portrays is a beautiful thing only because it portrays what God has. Even the covenant members here, it's a semblance, a reminder of the covenant that we have with God. But all those things, just pieces, glimpses of the covenant that God has made with us. And that covenant is, and forever, I will not abandon my people. I'm with you always. I'm with you. And I feel like tonight, in some of your rebellion, tonight you just need to be reminded that you serve a God who has made a covenant with you in Christ and will not break it despite your breaking of it. Receive his grace and forgiveness. Repent, turn from that sin and rebellion and reconnect submission with who you're submitting to. That's what these Israelites forget despite hearing this victorious speech. And I pray tonight, not a one of you in the victory that we have in Christ will forget the one who's communicated the covenant. Let's stand together. One last thing that's on my heart. I feel like right now we have an opportunity to worship in victory, to respond in victory, to stand in victory. And I don't know what's going on in your existence or realm or sphere that's making you feel defeated or burdened or bogged. I'm, I'm not sure. But what I'm going to pray right now is that the saints, the believers, those whose ransom has been paid by Christ, in spite of whatever it is that you've been struggling with, whatever it is that's brought you here tonight, and maybe for the first time in a long time, or maybe for the 17th time today, we can worship together again in victory. That we can expose our hearts again in victory. Why? Because we've gathered to worship and praise the one who's continually keeping his promises, who will accomplish his plan, who will in the end accomplish final victory over the enemy, and where all of those who have been blood bought through Christ, made a relationship with God, we will all stand in victory forever. I'm ready tonight to worship in victory. Burdens, worries, anxieties, all gone. Why? Because he is who he said that he is. Anybody else? So listen, you don't have to speak it. You don't have to muster it up. Let's pray right now for God to change our heart. And tonight to make us believe the reality that we're victors in him. God, please overwhelm us, consume us, in spite of us, help us know and believe that you will accomplish, that you keep your promises, that you care about your people, 
God, thank you that your promises have no bounds, that your care of us, your love of us has no barriers, that you've gone to the nth degree, God. We stand in victory tonight knowing that you've done it all. So please, in these moments, God, stir our hearts to genuine, victorious worship of you and you alone. Come on, church. Let's worship in victory.